0: Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I can't think of a better way to start a Saturday than to with genodermatosis and Bullus diseases, right? For all the guys out there, it's better than game day, right? We are going to talk about, uh, again, genodermatosis and Bullus diseases. Now, I'll tell you that most of the things we're going to talk about, they're the most common of these entities. Uh, the Bullus diseases we, you probably see on the, at least on a monthly basis, and the genodermatosis are a little bit... Less, un, or less common. But what I did is put the more common rare things in for the genodermatosis. Nice oxymoron there. But again, I was just speaking with your president. I took this lecture probably, give or take, five or six months ago. And when I was, when I took it, I was out of town, uh, away from my family, commuting back, back, back and forth from Florida. And uh, so this is an important date to me because I kept scrolling to that date. And every time I thought of it, um, it meant that I would be home. So big deal for me. So let's get started. Again, the outline, again, genodermatosis. We're, we're going to stay away from the defects. We're going to stay away from the genes uh, that cause these problems, and what we're going to do is concentrate on the clinical aspect, which is what you care about most. Again, we're going to eventually, the second half of the lecture, we're going to talk about Bullis diseases, and I'll get, I'll get into that in just a second. Genodermatosis, they're inherited genetic skin conditions often caused by three categories. You can have chromosomal abnormalities, a single gene, or it can be multiple things that cause these defects. Our focus, again, today is going to be primarily on the clinical signs and also the differential diagnosis. Because when you look at something, I've often said this. Imagine looking at either a glass slot, which I do for a living, or looking at a patient. When you look at a patient, who do you think is going to do the better job? The guy, when he looks at a patient thinks about five or six different things possibly going on, or one or two things. So what this lecture is designed to do is make you target in on the most common things. Again, when you you hear uh, clopping of heels, think of a horse, not a zebra, but it also adds to your differential. So when you look at something, you want to be able to think about more than just one thing. I've had this picture uh, several times on lectures before, and I always say, let's look at both babies both children. There is a subtle difference here. And I want, and and this is, we're by no means testing anyone. This is your own self-test. What child are you more concerned about? I'm going to come back to this picture so you don't have to worry about missing it. Which child are you more concerned with for long-term problems? And this, let's pretend this is a board question. Maybe A, B, the same, or not, not, you're not worried. They both have a port wine stain. Okay, we're going to focus in on baby B and I'm going to tell you why. Look what's missing on baby A compared to baby B. Baby B is involving the tip of the nose all the way up the forehead. Baby A not, it's not involving the tip of the nose and it's not involving the forehead and that's very, very important to notice clinically. Everyone's heard of the trigeminal cranial nerve? Well, it has three branches. It is the largest cranial nerve that we have, and it innervates three parts of the face. So it has, again, three branches. And and there's always been a lot of confusion about the trigeminal nerve because you'll hear doctors refer to it as V1, V2, and V3. Well, it's actually not a V. It's the Roman numeral five that we've just kind of made it into a V. So if you ever hear someone say in V1, V2, and V3, they're correct because that's what we've adapted our terminology to. But what they're meaning, that V is actually the Roman numeral five for the fifth cranial nerve. But anyway, the first part of of, of the trigeminal nerve, I apologize, innervates the nose all the way in the forehead and all the way to the top of the scalp. The second part of the trigeminal nerve innervates this area and then the third part of the trigeminal nerve innervates this area. So it's clear to see that we have involvement of V1, or the first branch of the trigeminal nerve, with this child, but we don't have it with this child. What's your diagnosis? We're going to be concentrated on Sturge-Weber syndrome. Okay, this this is another clinical photograph. And this child has glycoma and also the salmon patches can become much worse. They can get soft tissue hypertrophy underneath them. And let's talk a little bit about it. It's sporadic. There is no gene involved with, with Sturge Weber syndrome, and beneath it is just the long technical name, encephalotrigeminal angiomatosis. I prefer Sturge Weber syndrome. Uh, it's sporadic, and again, the second line there, I talk about V1. And when you have V1 involvement or first branch of the trigeminal nerve, there's a 15 to 10 to 15% chance of acquiring Sturge-Weber syndrome. And the reason that's important is because they have neurological disorders, but they also have eye problems as well. So if any child that has V1 involvement, it's a board question, V1 involvement or the first branch of the trigeminal nerve, you should definitely do a neurological exam. They possibly may need a head CT and do an eye exam as well. You may want to get opto-involved on these patients. Again, with, you don't have involvement of V1, there's basically a 0% chance of having Sturge-Weber syndrome. So concentrate from the tip of the nose to back to the forehead. That's where you want to see the salmon patch to at least consider Sturge-Weber syndrome. Our next one, what I'm going to do is show you some clinical photographs. We're going to try to put all of it together to come up with a diagnosis. These are actually real photographs from the University of Michigan, most of them, not all of them. These are called fat herniations. Basically, fat, or the subcutaneous tissue beneath the dermis, is protruding. More fat herniations. This is a real photograph, which would be hard. I don't think anyone could just walk into a clinic and say, oh, that's fat herniations right there, without question. Well, you you may have to get a biopsy to understand what's going on. This is called aplasia cutis. And then you also have fat herniations as well associated with the absence of skin. This is from the University of Michigan. The Band-Aids are where we took the punch biopsies. And it's often located in a a linear distribution. Again, these are the areas where we took the punch biopsies of the areas of the fat herniations. It's often inflammatory. There's an inflammatory redness, erythema associated with it, but again, in a linear distribution. These patients also have either syndactyly, the fusion of their digits, particularly their feet. They can have oligo, or they can have polydactyly as well. So they can have more, they can have six digits, or they can have four. This was a good case of syndactyly. They're characteristically known for their poor little hands to have lobster claws, and we're going to put all of this together here shortly. Eighty percent of the patients on x-rays have what's called osteopathica striata. And you get these longitudinal calcifications in the bones. Another characteristic is called a coloboma. And I'm not an eye doctor, and I've never actually seen a coloboma, but this is something that it should, you may want to look for clinically if you're trying to put this whole genodermatosis together. And it's a defect in the iris. There's basically It should should be a perfect circle, of course, but there's a defect in the iris right here, and they're congenital in 80% of the patients. If we were to do a punch biopsy, which we did, epidermis, now we should have dermis here. We should not have subcutaneous tissue going into the dermis. This should be reticular and papillary dermis, but it's not. The subcutaneous tissue is pushed all the way to the epidermis, and that is completely abnormal. Here's a question. Do you expect this to be a female or a male? We have a 50% chance of getting it correct. Okay, what's your diagnosis? The answer is Goltz syndrome. And, uh, of course, there's always someone really smart that comes up with a great acronym to help you remember Goltz syndrome. It's, another name for it, by the way, is called focal dermal hypoplasia. Remember, we, we didn't have a dermis on our, on our biopsy. His subcutaneous tissue was touching the epidermis. But someone came up with the acronym of FOCAL, which fits the name. It's female, and what that means is it's an X-linked dominant. The the defect is actually on the X chromosome in 90% of females. It's 90% of females, and it's only in 10% males. And actually, most of the time, in the males, this condition's lethal. They don't make it past conception, or they're never delivered osteopathic ostriata, coloboma, absinodermis, lobster claw. FOCAL is the acronym to help you keep the main clinical characteristics for Gold syndrome. They have additional findings and um, they have a differential diagnosis. We don't have time to spend on all of the differentials today because each one of these is a lecture in itself, Um, but you have them in your your PowerPoint presentation. Um, I've seen two cases of Gold syndrome, but it's always it's always nice to at least have it in your back pocket. This one you will see. I will tell you that this one is not that uncommon. You see biopsies related to this condition fairly regularly. So we have an infant with seizures, and we'll, we'll put a slash beside seizures, and we'll even say mental, mental retardation, and, we'll all, and with hypopigmented macules. Now, I use the word hypopigmented on purpose, not depigmented. What's your first thought? Again, we have neurological problems, and we have hypopigmented macules. I'm going to show you a clinical photograph. It's, it's such an important clinical photograph. So, we have, again, hypopigmented areas here. And if you notice, they're not depigmented. Depigmented like vitiligo, completely white. By the way, vitiligo, I don't know that you can be born with it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you can be, because I'm sure there's a case report out there with someone being born with vitiligo. Actually, the most common age for vitiligo is around age 20. Keep in mind, this is a child, this is or, or an infant. So it's unlikely to be vitiligo. And these are hypopigmented, not depigmented spots. They're normally transverse on the trunk. And on the extremities, they're normally longitudinal. But on the trunk, particularly the posterior, they like to be transverse. And they've been referred to as lance ovate, which means rounded and then pointed. Rounded at this edge, pointed, lance ovate. And from the beginning, because of time's sake, I'm going to tell you these are called ash leaves. They're the earliest and most characteristic of this entity. Not such a great photograph, but imagine someone or a child or an infant of my pigmentation, white, red-headed. And, and, and I, would, I would think that these, the, the hypopigmented areas, would be hard to recognize on a child of my color. So sometimes you can use a wood's lamp if you're suspecting this, not a great photograph or PowerPoint, but the, the Woods lamp can bring it out. As, an, as a teenager, they start developing multiple papules, particularly in the seb area. Around the nose, around the mouth. This is, the, again, this is another ash leaf, the earliest and most characteristic, but this is called a chagrin, And on, not that it matters, but on biopsy, it's a connective tissue nevus. I'm pointing this out because of our next two entities to follow. They can also have caffiolase. Caffiolase, you cannot look at a caffiolase and just think of one thing. And I'm going to prove that to you over the next two entities after this one. Periungual fibromas are also conan tumors, as sometimes they're referred to. What's your diagnosis? Very good. TS. And TS has a lot of things to know about it. And again, we're not going to focus on the, on the genes They have caffeolase. Keep that in mind. Please keep that in mind because of the next two things that we're going to talk about. We talked about the ash leaves. Three or more is what you want to be looking for. Three or more with neurological problems. got to be thinking of TS. I showed you the facial angiofibromas in the teenager. I showed you the periungal fibromas, but also they have angiomyolipomas of the kidney, rhabdomyomas of the heart. On one of my board exams, they gave me a clinical photograph with ash leaves. Told me the child had mental retardation. What test may I order? And uh, echocardiogram was the answer, and it had to do with the rhabdomyomas of the heart. They also have awful uh, pulmonary cyst and uh, lam, which is lymphangioleiomyomatosis of the of the lungs, which we will not go into. But I, I do want to point out something neat. Has anyone ever seen a case of nevus aminicus? Uh, the reason I like that entity is because you it they look very they they almost look like an ash leaf spot. But you can rub ice on a Nevis aminicus, and it doesn't get red. It does not get red, unlike an ash leaf, which would get red if you rubbed ice on it. Uh, just a neat clinical thing. But anyway, very good. Um, it, this name used to be named, they, and, and, I, and I mispronounce words all the time, but TS used to be called, it still is called Bourneville's disease, but it also used to be known as epiloia. And I never knew what that meant, Um, But it was an acronym, and it meant epilepsy, and then low intelligence, and it had to do with caffeolase, but that that meant it was an acronym for tuberculosis. Okay, another clinical scenario, another board question. Child with high blood pressure. I'm going to tell you the high blood pressure could come from renal artery stenosis, or it could come from a pheochromocytoma. I'm giving you guys hints. Axillary freckling. Now, the axillary freckling is should should go should really help you, and juvenile xanthogranulomas. What are you thinking? I'm showing you axillary freckling. Again, I'm sh- I just showed you TS with caffeolase. Now I'm showing you this entity with kaffiolase, and and axillary freckling is really good for this entity. It's actually it's called crow's sign. I'm showing you this. It's under the armpit again. And and characteristically, they don't get them on the scalp. The hands are the genitalia. This you see in 90% of the patients. This is the most, you remember how I explained that ash leaves were the earliest and most characteristic of TS? These, called Lish nodules, are the most characteristic of this entity. This, multiple lesions throughout the body. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed that the, the Pope a couple of weeks, there was a viral video that went viral, and he was kissing a person on the head that had multiple tumors. I, I really thought that the person had this entity. What's your diagnosis? NF? and There are multiple. And there's NF1, there's NF2, and, but we're, we're going to focus on NF1 today. So that makes these neurofibromas, and that makes those Lish nodules, and of course, that's Caffeolase neurofibromatosis or von Recklin housing disease again we're going to skip the genes but I'll tell you that you have to have two or more of these basic things to get the diagnosis of neurofibromatosis most characteristics you're going to have to have six or more laits over five millimeters before puberty and 15 millimeters after puberty which means as you get older the laits have to get bigger for you to fall into a classification of NF1 Two or more neurofibromas are one plexiform neurofibroma. Guys, if, you're, if your dermatopathologist ever sends you a diagnosis of plexiform neurofibroma and you are absolutely convinced that that person does not have NF1, then you need to get on the phone with them because a diagnosis of plexiform neurofibroma basically says the person has NF1. Be careful with that one. These patients are prone to malignancies. We've already discussed the axillary freckling which is called Crowe's sign, but they have optic gliomas. They have malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors, rhabdomyosarcomas. The most characteristic lesion in in NF1, again, are the Lisch nodules. And there are other criteria (coughs) to help you get to the diagnosis of NF1. Additional findings, juvenile xanthogranulomas, because old board question for me is JXGs plus cathiolase basically equals NF1. And they have high blood pressure for a couple reasons, renal artery stenosis and pheochromocytomas. pheochromocytomas. They have an increased risk for JMML, which is just a childhood form of chronic myelogenous leukemia. Um, And again, we won't go over the differentials today, but good, you guys got that, NF1. Another board question. Nine-year-old female, precocious puberty. Again, another one with cathiolase multiple fractures. What are you thinking? These caffeoles are a little different, and they've been described as segmental, and often they don't cross the midline, um, but they've been described as having the coast of Maine. They're not smooth-bordered. They're, they're jaggedy-bordered. Uh, the coast of Maine um, appearance at the, at the borders. This is called fibrous dysplasia. Again, none of us are radiologists in here, but this is the reason they have multiple fractures, because of fibrous dysplasia of their long bones. Again, I'm bringing you right back to the question, what's your diagnosis? And it's McCune-Albright, which is not too uncommon. Again, we talked about the large segmental cafiolase, the coast of Maine border, and they usually do not cross the midline. The reason they have multiple fractures is the polyostatic fibrous dysplasia. And their precocious puberty can also be in other ways. They have endocrine abnormalities, and it can be hyperthyroidism. Uh, what's your differential here? Because of the caffeolase, well, NF is going to be in your differential. And although TS gives you caffiolase, again, we're concentrating on the ash leaves. We're concentrating on the hypopigmented areas more than that. Infant was referred to dermatology for a generalized scaling, eryth- erythroderma, worsening subderm, and thin sparse hair. Child also has multiple allergies to several foods. So you're putting a lot of things together to come up with one one diagnosis. That's what we do. Again, there's a triad here erythroderma, scaling, and hair abnormalities. Erythroderma, scaling, and hair abnormalities. That's your triad, and that's how you're going to get to your answer. Good picture of erythroderma, good scaling. Now, if you notice, this child again has hair abnormalities. That is not normal hair. Erythroderma has some scaling. He's also missing his eyebrows. This is a low power, and then a high power view of it. Now, I can tell you, you don't get this all of the time, and I've only seen this once. You know, it's called the double edge border. You have a border here, and you have a border here, and it's serpiginous. It's like a snake. This is called ILC ichthyosis linearis circumflexa ILC is a better name for it and it's characteristic although not all the time present for this entity. <coughs> if you were to do and we can evaluate hair and what this hair is representing is called trichorecus invaginatum, basically a socket and ball uh, the, the hairs going into the other part of the hair and it's not the only hair abnormality that you see the first part of this, first arrow right here, is called pilotortia and it just means that the hair's twisting. And this is another example of a, another hair abnormality you can have, which is called trichorexis nodosa. So multiple hair abnormalities with, this ch- with these children. What's your diagnosis now? It's Netherton syndrome. I told you, we would concentrate on the most common, rare things. <laughs> Again, the other name for it, of course, is is ichthyosis linearis circumflexa, Netherton syndrome. We will not talk about the genes involved. And, again, it's a triad of erythroderma, scaling, and hair abnormalities. Um, The reason they have a lot of reactions to a lot of foods is because they have an increased IgE. They have hypernatremia because they're losing a lot of water. Um, But, again, I think you should think of the most common things if you're presented with this clinical scenario uh, sebderm. Make sure they don't have a, t- a tinea infection, scabies infection, erythrodermic psoriasis. But This is just adding to your differentials. This is making you, in a sense, more valuable. More, your patient's going to benefit from you knowing all of these things. Fifteen-year-old with multiple milia and two pigmented, parentheses nevoid basal cells. Their basal cells aren't like everyone else's. On his nose, what are you considering? Pigmented BCCs. Here's an example. Here's a picture of it. Right there on the nose. Multiple milia, as you can see. Uh, Palmer pit. Basically, these pits that you see in the palms are basically pathognomonic of this entity. Again, none of us are radiologists, but see these translucent areas? These are cysts. They're called odontogenic keratocysts. The arrow's pointing to a medulloblastoma, so they can... can, uh, some pretty bad malignancies right there in the cerebellum this is called calcification of the Falk cerebri right in the midline um, meanwhile the, this is a sonic hedgehog pathway defect and sonic hedgehog it, it controls midline development of the human uh, that's why most of the defects in this entity are in the midline what's your diagnosis now Okay, so basal cell nevus syndrome or Gorlin syndrome. I've highlighted or made in bold the most common things that you would see in this entity. So 65% of the time you have these things. So, of course, of course multiple BCCs, palma, palma plantar pits, which is pathogemonic, the cyst within the jaws, the calcification of the falx cerebri, and, and all of the other things that you can acquire with, with Gorlin syndrome. We won't go over the pathway and how this acquires because that's, I want you guys to be able to take home some clinical information opposed to the molecular information. So we covered the most common rare things, if that makes sense to you guys, of genodermatosis. Genodermatosis could be a, not only a, a, an hour lecture in itself, it could be its own conference. Uh, there are multiple ones, but um, hopefully you guys um, will think of some of these things when you see some patients. We're going to cover, uh, cover the autoimmune bullous diseases, which is probably one of my favorite topics. Um, you cannot discuss bullous diseases without talking about direct immunofluorescence. Last year, I gave a, a, a lecture on, at, I think it was this conference, on direct immunofluorescence, and I have a soapbox to stand on when talking about this. Two reasons you should be ordering direct immunofluorescence, and, and I'm going to tell you a story is if you're thinking of some sort of blistering disease or bullous disease, basically the same thing, or an autoimmune disease. That's it. I got a biopsy the other day. It had rule-out drug eruption, and it had a biopsy for direct immunofluorescence sent with it. Okay. The rule-out drug eruption is going to cost a patient anywhere from 75 to $100. That's a basic biopsy, punch biopsy, nothing big. It's about eight hundred and six dollars for a direct immunofluorescence biopsy, and by all means, if it's necessary, if we need to confirm something, if we need to rule out something, then we have to get it. But know why you're or why you have to order that test: autoimmune diseases, lupus, dermatomyositis, dermatomyositis, sorry, misspeaking, or bullous or blistering disorders. And we need to talk a little bit about direct immunofluorescence first and how it works. So we have a target protein, and again, all of our, all of our autoimmune diseases, are, our patient has antibodies directed towards itself. So this is the bad antibody that, that is within the patient, directed against a target protein. Okay, and we will talk about some of the target proteins. But again, these patients have autoimmune disorders, so it's binding to their target protein. What we're doing in the lab is we're sending an antibody that's looking for this antibody. So when our labeled antibody binds with the autoantibody, we can see it highlighted with a fluorescent microscope. That's the concept behind direct immunofluorescence. Again, autoimmune diseases produce antibodies, correct, that bind to antigens. In the laboratory, we have labeled antibodies that are searching for that antibody. And there it is right there, targeting that antibody and if there's no autoantibody well it doesn't have anything to bind to therefore we're not going to get we're going to get a negative direct immunofluorescence that's the overall concept concept of DIF we focus in on the dermal epidermal junction and we focus in on in between the keratinocytes the junction in between the keratinocytes real quick I have to recognize this, as, but I want you guys to understand the terminology, the patterns of direct immunofluorescence. So it's either at the dermoepidermal junction or the intercellular spaces. And if it's at the dermoepidermal junction, it can have two patterns linear or granular. So that, that's what it looks like when it's linear at the dermoepidermal junction. And that's what it looks like when it's granular. Look, it's more granular than, than before linear, granular. That's what it looks like at the intercellular area, within the epidermis, between the keratinocytes, and that's a high-power view. Again, let's let's talk about some diseases where it's at the dermal-epidermal junction. These are the diseases that are positive for direct immunofluorescence. Guys, do not focus on any of the antigens at current. This lecture is not designed for that. But focus on the diseases. If you're trying to exclude any of these diseases, then you're okay to get a biopsy for direct immunofluorescence. It's worth the money. 68-year-old man, look at his age, very, very important, and he's got this blistering disorder. Now I will tell you, you should consider four things here, four things. Could be bullous tinea, which is pretty common in the older population. Bullish drug eruption. How many drugs do your patients come in on? Very common. Bullous arthropod bite reaction. That's the third thing. And the fourth thing is what this is. By the way, where would you want to get a biopsy? You always want to center your biopsy where you get, in a sense, normal skin and half of the blister. So you'd want to do your punch, not a shave, where you acquire some of the blister and some of the normal or even the erythroderma around it. But try to acquire some of the blister on your punch biopsy. Very tense blisters associated with surrounding erythroderma. Again, if I were biopsying here, I would get one of these little guys, and my punch biopsy would be half blister and half erythroderma. Now, on, on, just for the H&E, and the reason it's so important for me to see where you guys are biopsying is because I make my diagnosis based on where the blister is. Some blistering disorders give you the blister right beneath the stratum corneum. Some blistering disorders give it within the epidermis. But this disease gives it directly at the dermal-epidermal junction, and we call those sub-epidermal blisters, sub-epidermal blisters. So it, it matters where the blister is for me to form my diagnosis. By the way, this is a sub-epidermal blister with numerous eosinophils. Now, I can tell you, bullous drug, bullous arthropod, well, we'd get a negative PAS stain for bullous tinea. And this entity can all have the, can have the exact histology. But luckily, we have direct immunofluorescence to bail us out, and it's linear at the dermal-epidermal junction. And it's bullous pemphigoid. Very common. Not uncommon is probably a better way to say it. It's usually a disease of elderly. I have seen multiple biopsies sent to me saying, rule out bullous pemphigoid, and it's in a 20-year-old, in a 30-year-old. Can it happen? Of course it can happen, but it's going to be extremely rare. This is a disease of the elderly. But before we're going to give a diagnosis of bullus Pemphigoid, we have to ex- at least exclude bullous Drug, Bullis arthropod, and bullus Tenia. So make sure your, your dermatopathologist is getting a PAS stain on that. Well worth the $800 that you're going to spend on direct immunofluorescence, and it's easily treated now. Next one. There's a couple of clues that I put in here. It's 32-year-old, multigravita, she's had multiple children, opposed to a gravida, who's only had, this is her first pregnancy, it's in her second trimester. Now, this is a characteristic photograph. They call this the ring of pearls. Um, by the way, you can see this in linear IgA, which this is not a case of. So just because you see it lining like this doesn't mean it's linear IgA. This is a close-up photograph of her belly. The reason I'm pu- showing you guys histology, which you probably don't want to see, keep in mind that's a sub-epidermal blister, right? Remember Where the blister formation takes place is right beneath the epidermis. And there it is with eosinophils, so a sub-epidermal blister with eosinophils. It has the exact histology as bullous pemphigoid. This is pemphigoid gestationis, or it has the the awful name of herpes gestationis, because it has nothing to do with herpes. Zero. It's not a herpes infection. But normally... Uh, what's our most common pregnancy rash, guys? First, most common one you're going to see much more than this one is pup. But if, if, if you're getting blistering, pups should not blister. Pup should be in the third trimester of a prim gravita, So if you get a rash in the second trimester, and she's had multiple children, and she's starting to blister, at least consider PG. I changed the age on you guys, because this is not a disease of the elderly. This is a disease of middle age. And it's a 58-year-old male. And this looks bad. And keep in mind, a little while ago, we had tense blisters. These are, these are actually referred to as flaccid blisters. It almost looks like an awful, awful sunburn. Uh, this is called Nikolsky sign, when you can basically pull off the superficial aspect of the epidermis. You can just pull it off. That's called Nikolsky sign. You can see it in Staph Scalded Skin Syndrome. So Nikolsky sign is not specific for this entity. You can see it in other areas, in other diseases as well. Oral involvement. And I'll tell you guys why we have oral involvement in just a second. And this is a histology. This is what I'm looking for. A little while ago, we our blister formed beneath the epidermis, if you remember, and we called that a sub-epidermal blister. This is called a supra, which means above, suprabasilar blister. It means above the basal layer of the epidermis. Suprabasalar blister. So that's it's important for you guys to blister that that. To biopsy the blister for me because the location of the blister helps me make my diagnosis. Again, a suprabasal or blister with acantholysis. And acantholysis imagine a brick wall falling apart. The mortar in between, of the, in between the bricks is, is crumbling. That's what's happening in between the keratinocytes, and we refer to that as acantholysis. We get direct immunofluorescence, and it's highlighting in between the keratinocytes. So it would be positive this area would all be positive in between the keratinocytes. And this is an autoimmune disorder. We have antibodies that are directed towards, in this entity, desmoglein 3, which is, we won't get into that, but it's, it's a desmosomal protein, and keep in mind, desmosomes hold keratinocytes together. If we have antibodies coming, attacking our mortar, well, of course, our mortar's going to break up, and that's why we get the, the histology photograph that we get. It's pemphigus vulgaris. Flaccid blisters, opposed to tense blisters in BP. Middle age, opposed to elderly in BP. And and they excoriate. Nikolsky sign with Pemphigus vulgaris. So there's a couple of things that you can get different with PV, opposed to uh, bullus Pemphigoid. I don't think anyone's gonna miss this. So a 34-year-old female, annular lesions, scaling. By the way, this is good scale, everyone would agree. I got a uh, request the other day for um, rule out erythema multiforming and it immediately had scale on the on the biopsy. It had parakeratosis. This scale tells us this is, at least, this is a chronic chronic process. It takes two weeks to form scale by the way. Erythema multiforming is an ac- acute process. You would never have scale. Scale is a big thing for me. So if you guys say a scaling rash on, in your clinical description that tells me it's chronic, that it's been there for at least two days. Uh, and it helps me get to a better diagnosis for you. This is the low, mo- low, and this is going to be the high view. Now, again, we're at the dermoepidermal epidermal junction, and this dermoepidermal junction is being destroyed. It's being eaten, and we call this an interface process, a lichenoid interface process, if that terminology, if you've seen that before in a pathology report. And these are called necrotic keratinocytes, and this is very characteristic with the clinical photograph Of course, what lab would you get on this patient? You would get an ANA. You'd go double-stranded DNA. And just let me uh, step back just for one second. An ANA, I like to give everyone this acronym. I like to share this acronym because it has helped me out so much. If you're getting an ANA for a patient that has lupus, that is a sensitive test. Sensitive. Now, everybody write this down. SNOUT, S-N-O-U-T. The S stands for if it's sensitive and it's negative, then it rules you out. That's the definition of sensitivity, that if it's negative, it rules you out. And the acronym for that is SNOUT. Opposed to a test being specific, write down the acronym SPIN, S-P-I-N. In a specific test, if it's positive, it rules you in. When ANA is 99% sensitive, for lupus. So basically, if you get a negative ANA, it's very unlikely that a patient has lupus. So that just helps you with, know why you're ordering some of the tests you're ordering, if it's sensitive or specific. Again, this is one of the entities where you get the granular at the dermal-epidermal junction on direct immunofluorescence. This is an autoimmune disease. This is lupus erythematosus, and I always like to put this in. This is a uh, it's, a, it's a lupus mnemonic that I learned back in medical school. It's called SOAP Brain MD. And it goes through all of the 11 criteria that you need. You, I think you need seven of these to get to a diagnosis. The 11 criteria for lupus. Again, it's called SOAP Brain MD. Um, and it just makes you look kind of smart if you're out there and you can rip these off real fast. No one has to know that you're doing it off an acronym. Again, this was a homecoming for me. These are my girls who have grown since this picture. Um, This one is now 13. I have a 13-year-old, I have a brand new kindergartner now, and I have a nine-year-old. And I have a basketball game here in about two hours with that one. Um, But I am happy to be home, thank you so very much. Any questions? Not, so don't, try to, he, the question was, where should you biopsy for direct immunofluorescence for a, bullet, for a blistering disorder? Here's your blister. Try to put your hub half in the blister and half into the skin that is not blistering. If you guys can acquire some of the blister, it, helps me, it allows me to see the blister transition into what part of the epidermis that the blister is. So try to acquire half blister, half, half erythroderma, if that makes sense. Try to get at least some of that blister into your hub. Yes, ma'am. Uh, how important is it to get the indirect, I mean the blood, the blood specimen? The blood specimen. I, I can't remember the last time we did one of those. It's all on direct immunofluorescence now. To me, a much better test. Well, because it seems like whenever you get the kit, you have the Michelle's and then you have a blood tube for the indirect. I think if you, if you guys are still stuck and you don't have an answer. Uh, After you've done an H&E biopsy and you've done direct immunofluorescence and you and your team are sitting around saying, we don't know what to do now because we really wanted this to be positive and it came back negative, then go with the indirect. I mean, how often would it be positive but the DIF would be negative? Not often. Okay. Not often. Do you uh, have any ideas on why axillary freckling or the crow's sign occurs with neurofibromatosis and why we don't get freckling behind the knees or in other skin folds with that disorder? Good, good question. Because you remember in, in, the, in the slide, I talked about it being in the axillary. It can actually be in the inguinal area. I don't know why, but that's just one area that I focus my clinical is in the, in the intertrogenous areas, particularly the groin and the axillary. Why it occurs in those areas and not so much on the scalp, not so much in the genitalia, not so much on the hands, I don't know. Um, can you address, I was always told that you should take a specimen for um, direct immunofluorescence uh, one centimeter from the blister. Is that still not? I, I can tell you why I don't like that. Um, I like to acquire blister because the location of the blister is going to tell me what type of blistering disorder it is. Because again, blister, blistering disorders can be beneath the stratum corneum, which brings me into a completely differential, completely different differential when I'm making my diagnosis. It can be within the epidermis, it can be below the epidermis, or it can be above the basal layer. And I have to be able to see that to know what you, to, to at least on my H&E diagnosis, to say it's really good for bullous pemphigoid, it's really good for pemphigus vulgaris. Without seeing any blister, we're going we're gonna to be, re, be relying 100% on the direct immunofluorescence. The reason I like to acquire blister is because... Even if, because DIF's not a perfect test. What if it's perfect for, for BP? What if the person's elderly age, it's a subepidermal blister with eosinophils, and the DIF comes back negative? That test is not 100% you know, accurate. It at least allows me to see blister to say, look, guys, I really think it's good for BP, even though the DIF's negative. So where would you take your specimen for the H&E? Would you try to get a full, whole blister intact? I, I'm, I'm a half and half guy, so oh, I, you do half half, oh, and, half, okay. for, for H&E, half and half for H and E, half and half for for direct immunofluorescence. Now, if you if you wanted to scoot out a little bit further for your direct immunofluorescence, as long as the H and E had half and half, I think that would be okay. How long can a diff sit in a biopsy bottle before it's considered no good? I mean, a day or oh, a no, week. much it sit longer a than weekend that. Weekend it absolutely the could sit through the weekend. It could sit okay. probably for a couple of weeks, and it should be fine. It's it's protected okay. in that medium. Okay. Mm-hmm. I like three to four. That's always good. I'm greedy, though, so I'm a pathologist. I'm always going to ask for more tissue. (laughs) Thank you so much.